Five billion people died in 1996 and 1997. Almost the entire population of the world. Only about 1% of us survived. Are you going to save us, Mr. Cole? How can I save you? This already happened. I can't save you. Nobody can. I am simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now, Mr. Cole? No. 1990 is the past. This already happened. That's what I'm trying to... Mr. Cole? Mr. Cole? You believe 1996 is the present, then? Is that it? No. 1996 is the past, too. Listen to me. What I... What I... What I need to do is make a telephone call. I, I can straighten this all out if I make a telephone call. Welcome to part two of our 12 Monkeys and La Jete episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect in their exclusive patron feed. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. So let's start with the $1 tier, the, the Travolti's. We'll start at the, the ground floor. What does $1 get you on our Patreon? Well, for starters, it gets you the bonus episode on Much Ado About Nothing, requested slash demanded by patron Chas Fisher, who didn't feel like it was enough to make us watch Jurassic World Dominion. He also felt like <laughs> it was time for Alex to potentially suffer through another period piece. This one, uh, basically a Shakespeare adaptation. If you want to see how that turned out, that's on the Patreon feed, along with all the other bonus episodes that we've done, most of them requested by patrons. Additionally, Lohan Part 1 is right there. Alex, I'm going to read you a comment from one of our patrons who just listened to Part 1. This is Film Busters oh, Ben. He says, several hours of cleaning fly by with another topical season from you fellas. Great work, making someone who is seemingly unfascinating, fascinating. Mean Girls... Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, I would like to know what the British equivalent of uh, Lindsay Lohan Wait, is. We call it out in there, like when we fawn over the cultural impact Mean Girls has had here. But there's no way we don't know, but well, that could just be a, a dollar bin movie. His there. next sentence, Alex, is Mean, oh. mean Girls a hundred percent traveled. It was huge oh. over here too. It still holds a place in my heart. I'm listening to you guys talk about it, particularly with you bordering on the full five for it, Julio. I may just have to show it to my wife for the first time. Love the commitment <gasps> here for part two. So he loves Mean Girls, but he doesn't find Lindsay Lohan fascinating. Which is like almost the antithesis of like our final thought on Mean Girls was despite everyone being so great, Lindsay Lohan kind of steals the show. <laughs> so... uh Basically, thank you for the kind words, Ben. But you just you just threw us for a loop. We'll see. We'll see yeah, how man. he feels about part two. <laughs> I was about to say, glad that's impressive turnaround time. Glad you already got through it and enjoyed it. And uh yeah. Um sadly parts two and three may not have all the same like upbeat and whimsy <laughs> as the first one, but we'll we'll try to make it as entertaining as possible. Yeah, it will have us at the very least. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so Lohan, along with uh, other other special projects, also right there on the on the one dollar tier, we have the the summer break trilogy, and we have the Roxena miniseries. A lot of good stuff. Now, if you want to go mm -hmm. up a tier to the Winonis, or even further up, uh, you also have access to our pre-recording notes, to our QVRs, which this month we're doing another dual QVR. This one requested slash demanded by Ryan. We're going to be doing the movie Bad Genius. Still haven't done it. Still don't know what it's about other than it's from Thailand. So, Alex, just be open. <laughs> that's, that's being our motto I am. throughout this entire patron yeah. takeover season. Keeps us on our toes because there's no real flow to it. Yep, yep. Uh, and then, of course, we also have Contrarians After Hours. That's the spin-off show where we tell you about other things that we've watched, that we listened to, that we've read, that we've thought about. Alex, what are we doing on this very special Contrarians After Hours? Well, Julio, this past weekend, at the time of recording, just a few days ago, we partook in yet another live stream for The Cure. And every year, I say it was the most fun we've had doing it. And every year, I feel like our hour flies by. And it really did. It was like a 
blink and it was over type affair, mm-hmm. but had a great time with that. We raised, uh, we hit our goal for raising money during our hour, which was fucking awesome and happy that the guys were able to raise as much money as they were for uh, a noble cause. So on After Hours, we'll be doing a uh, in-depth recap, a peeling the curtain back behind the scenes analysis of our uh, performance. Performance, our, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our, uh, our, our spot, our guest appearance on the live stream for The Cure and just, you know, putting over... Dan, Nick, and Gerald, and everyone who made that possible. Yes. Now, do not confuse this with uh, something else that we're actually going to put on the main feed, which is, uh, yes, uh, you know, during our segment, we took as, as many of the suggestions from the audience as we could, but there were some that were left hanging. Uh, so we, we put it on Twitter. We're like, we'll take care of those uh, on the main feed, just a little bonus episode, uh, along with, and if you were there, you, you saw it happen. Like, we were blitzing through the content that uh, it's and we're having so much fun with it that we completely forgot to do the josh gat minute <laughs> on, mm-hmm. on the movies that were thrown at us so i think that what we're going to do for this uh upcoming bonus episode is uh not the after hours but the one that's going to be in the main feed is just we're going to do the josh gat minute for the movies that we did on the on the segment ending also will take care of uh, the movies that we didn't get to uh so that's coming uh sometime soon i mean i need to go through the segment so we can pick all the stuff that we we didn't get to so keep an eye out for that but yeah this after hours we'll be talking about the just behind the scenes and the analysis and then kind of rounding it out alex i need to bring on the next chapter of my uh kickstarter saga i i received the Mm. comic that i (laughs) that i contributed to i got the the trade paperback containing the, the four comic books, the first sort of pilots from uh, J.M. DeMatteis. And I read them and I voted on which series I want to continue. And I'm going to tell you all about it because it was it was pretty cool. And, uh, and also, I'll spend a few minutes telling you about uh, a kind of like a spontaneous outing. One of our friends had tickets for They Might Be Giants, that yeah. rock band, yeah, which I was somewhat familiar with. And... Uh, she had spare tickets. She asked if my wife and I wanted to go with her. So we did. So I'm going to tell you about that because uh, Bear Wilson's had been to a live show here in the States. I mean, if you listen to our Christmas After Hours, obviously, I went to that concert with my mother and my wife in Spain. But this is different. This was at the Moody Center, which I feel like I, the Moody Center has come up time and again in our page. When was feed. that? I'm sorry. That was yesterday. <laughs> Sunday. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we've both been to the Moody Center in the past week. They they get their contrarian business. They do. Yeah. We should put up flyer or something up there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, that will be your after hours, along with all the other stuff that we mentioned. Any of that sounds interesting. Just go to patreon.com slash contrarian prime. Check our tiers. See if you'd like to join the contrarian supplements. $1, $3, $5, and $10. Julio gave the, the lowdown, the 4-1-Uno on our respective tiers and what you get for them another satisfied customer with film busters ben just ringing in his resounding endorsement uh be sure to check out our patron there's a lot of good shit there uh most recently in addition to our low hand julio and i have an interesting discussion about wes anderson a polarizing director at least in the world <laughs> of the contrarians so <laughs> and you can go all the way back to episode number one when i just go all in on my love for blue is warmest color and everything in between <laughs> To all of our current patrons, we love you all dearly, past, present, and future. And I say that in the future, and that we're always reviewing and quickly accepting applications for new patrons. So patron.com slash contrarian prime. Check it out. Throw us a buck. You'll love it. You'll want to give us more money, and we will gladly take it and continue to deliver the quality of product that our patrons have come to expect. So with that being said, do we get in the time machine now? Well, first we need to eat the spider. And then yes. we go back. And then go back. Yes. Or forward. Somewhere. We, we go back home. That's what we do. I, I guess they give you some chemical restraints, huh? Drugs! What did they give you? Thorazine? Haldol? How much? How much? All right. So that brings us to, uh, you know, I, I guess every episode, Real Talk is the, the main event or what have you. But Julio, when... Um, you talk about your podcast and your co-host and someone asks you, you know, what are Alex's favorite movies? I assume Halloween, Almost Famous. You probably say he really likes this movie called Good Time. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> Conversely, 
when someone <laughs> uh, I'm talking to someone about my podcast and someone says your co-host, you know, Julio, what what are his favorite movies? I may be off base, but I always say uh, American Beauty, uh, Annie Hall, and Twelve Monkeys. <laughs> you have told me in the past that I think I overrate your love of Twelve Monkeys, but I've always associated this as one of your favorites. Definitely not as much as you overrate my love for American Beauty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it, just to be, I mean, I do like American Beauty a lot. I, I know that it's it's kind of fallen from grace in our estimation. Uh, I guess you can say the same about Annie Hall. But uh, Annie Hall, you're right on the money. I think that if if I'm pushed to say like what my favorite movie ever is, it's Annie Hall. Uh, American Beauty, I, mean, I like a lot, and then Two of Monkeys, uh, I like it a lot. And I also have, like, I think a pretty good story, like a, a personal like attachment to it. So I think that that helps. Uh, you know, that's why it comes up in conversation. And yeah, I can see how people would be like, oh, but that's, you know, think that that's a movie that I that I love. And I probably do. I mean, I'm sure it's in my top 50 mm-hmm. already, you know, jumping all the way to the end of Real Talk. Like, this is going to be, this has a high score. Well, lesson learned. I'll still keep 12 Monkeys in that, you know, the... The quick Julio like it. bio. Uh, it's it's idiosyncratic. It's like not everybody brings up Twelve Monkeys. And the reason I bring it up here is because I made the joke that this is going to be a tall task for you and Contrarian's Corner to make light of that movie. And it turned out to be a bit more difficult for me than I was expecting. We kind of it's I mean for one, just be honest. It's a, a plot wise, it's a hard movie to kind of ping pong around and joke about because there's mm-hmm. a lot of convoluted shit to say the very least in that movie but um you're better about uh masking your emotions than i am on this because you <laughs> a lot of times if we do a movie i love i get really frustrated with the idea of having to make fun of it but uh so i would like to get to this sooner rather than later so let's just go ahead and start with the quotes um did you pull quotes for la Jete and 12 monkeys Yes, I have only one uh, rotten for La Because I believe that, uh, that we said that, that was 93%, so I imagine that's the lone <laughs> negative review. Yes, uh, it, it is from Bosley Crowther from the New York Times. He says, I find it tediously pretentious, but there are striking images in it, and it does get across a vague impression of Frankensteinian meddling with the brain. So he gives it some props, but he also says tediously pretentious, which is... I don't, I like in my mind, the word pretentious didn't exist in 1962. Like, who were the, the, the Julio's and Alex's going to this? Be like, you fucking kidding me? Are you seeing this? <laughs> who does this French guy think he is? <laughs> yeah. Make the move. And then, did we say 12 Monkeys is 88% on Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, so, 88. What, uh, who, who's got beef with this? <laughs> Um, I'm going to start with Richard Corliss from Time Magazine, who says, In its frantic mix of chaos, carnage, and zoo animals, 12 Monkeys is Jumanji for adults. What? (laughs) Uh, I would dare say that they didn't get 12 Monkeys or Jumanji. (laughs) He watched Jumanji and he was like, this is 12 Monkeys for kids. Yeah. (laughs) I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> uh, all right. Leslie Rigolot from Film Scouts, she says, The acting is good, and the visuals are sharp, but at two hours long, they should have just settled for six monkeys. <laughs> Zing. Um, without getting into it too much, Alex, did you did you feel the length? It's like 210. Yeah, I mean, it's longer than what I typically prefer, but I watched it in a few parts when I was working and doing some different stuff today. No, you were like Bruce Willis, like coming back to it naked, yeah. trying to get your bearings again, <laughs> drooling. Um, yeah, no, it, because the thing is, I can't really think of where I would cut something out. There are some things that you could. No, you, I was going to say you could cut out that dinner banquet dinner with uh, Christopher Plummer, but no, because that's how Brad and Bruce intertwine again. So, mm-hmm. look. I I stand steadfast that 90% of movies should be 90 minutes, but you're going to have movies like this that are flushed out and intelligent enough to warrant longer runtimes. And 
as anyone who's listened to more than one episode of this knows, I'll tell you when I, I get bored with movies and I never really found myself bored with this. Um, the end, like what leads into what's going to happen. Maybe you could say it drags a little bit, but the re- it's worth it for like the reveal of everything that happens. And mm-hmm. of course this is a movie. You can only see the ending of it one time, but you're never going to forget that first time you saw it. And like the, it, it's, <laughs> it's great. When everything comes together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Next, Mal Vincent from The Virginian Pilot says, It is only the latest in a parade of movie downers intent on convincing us that the future will be a bleak world that is either devoid of water and gas or one in which we've blown ourselves up with atomic power. Enough. <laughs> Mal, I got really bad news for you. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a bleak world out there, man. If your problem is that you just want a happier type of sci-fi movie, I mean, sure, but that's. Can you think, Alex, of a movie that's too bleak for you to to enjoy, to where you just kind of throw a tantrum like this dude is is throwing? You just yeah. go like, enough of this. Uh, Ar- uh, Ari- Ariana, what was the movie we watched? The. <laughs> <laughs> at the the at the spaceship the, the yeah. space cruise that get lost and uh, God what was it called oh you know Jordan you know because you you made us watch it uh, all right we're gonna close with Steve Rhodes from Internet Reviews who simply says a movie that is about as much fun to watch as getting your teeth pulled oh what? I get it <laughs> oh he's referencing the movie yeah okay. Well, uh, I don't know how you could not have fun with this movie unless you're, you know, the guy that thinks it's too bleak. So I, I guess <laughs> there's some of them out there. This uh, movie, there, it is made with a sense of Hollywood wonder and fun. I don't know how you could find this too bleak. And yeah, it sucks that the yep. main character dies in the end. But, but you get the, the Brad Pitt performance. Well, and depending on how you read the story, it's the he's alive again. Like he just, the cycle starts back over. So yeah, I don't. I don't. <laughs> he's alive again so he can suffer through all of it again. <laughs> There were a few <laughs> there were a few people I remember that had issues with the way Looper ended and you know let's talk about another time traveling Bruce Willis movie and I thought that ending was incredible mm-hmm. and it's you know I know people thought that that movie was bleak because that it's similar you know the the 5 billion people don't die but things change and I'm I'm sorry to get real here before we go to our guest of honor um I have no tolerance for the the perce- like movies that perceive the future to be cutthroat and violent for anyone who's lived through what we've lived through in <laughs> America over the past 10 years I have no patience for someone to say it's too bleak or you know out of the realm you know people would do better I don't buy that for a fucking second <laughs> the real science fiction you know the, the real fantasy is if you depict the future where everybody gets along and everybody does the right thing <laughs> That uh, to be clear, it doesn't mean I always want to watch what the absolute worst case scenario is, like that spaceship movie we're talking about, or Melancholia. But it's uh, to say a movie like this that is made with like that what makes movies great that has like a realistic, a possibly realistic portrayal of what's to come. And hey, not everything's the Wizard of Oz, homeboy. And if that's <laughs> what you like, say that. But then you can't expect me to like take seriously when you're trying to critique a movie like this. Sorry, I just this movie. I find it to have endless rewatchability, and it's you watch something like this for what we love in movies. And so, when I hear someone say that, I I'd probably sound a bit more defensive than I should be. But <laughs> that's you know kind of a teaser of how I feel about it. We know Julio's got it in his top fifty. What Stu? He he brought us La Jetée and uh, Twelve Monkeys. So what? What's his preamble? What does he have to offer us? All right, take it away, Stu. Hey, Contrarians, Stu from Draft Zero here. I'm really looking forward to you doing this face-off between Legette and the film and inspired Ted, Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. Because what I think is really interesting about these two films, and look, I'm, I'm going to admit that it's been a while since I've seen them, and I'm old enough for a while to meet a really long freaking time. Nonetheless... What I think is interesting is we're talking about an art house film, quite experimental by Chris Marker, legit, that inspired not only Terry Gilliam's art house tinged, but really quite mainstream sci-fi thriller. I mean, it's got Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt, and it's awesome. Uh, 
and inspired that, and and in turn that inspired a TV series. I mean, I I can't think of anything else that would do that. I mean, I mean, maybe Metropolis is they're turning into a TV series, but you know, Met- Metropolis is kind of like arch and expressionistic, but I don't think it's quite as experimental as Legit. You know, maybe maybe it's like La Passion de Jean d'Arc. I am I butchered that. Uh, you know, maybe it's like The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer, right? The really experimental film from 1928, making a feature. And look, they've made features of Joan of Arc, but like something based on that specifically, and then that in itself turning into a five-season Netflix show. I mean, that would be wild. And I'm really interested to hear your takedown of this, because uh, I think it's awesome, and it's nice to be reminded that film firm can actually be something more than just 24 frames or as Chris Marcus contemporary Goddard would say that film could be more than lies at 24 frames per second. Alex, are you second guessing how we pronounce La Jete now? <laughs> yes, but we can just say that it was a bit. <laughs> I, I mean, Stu's not French, Stu's Australian, so maybe he's just doing it with an Australian accent. I don't know. I, I, I think that we're too far into it to, to change. I've been saying La Jete, and I'm going to keep saying La Jete. So according, <laughs> Google says La Jete, and then YouTube says La Jete. And so I don't, I don't know, man, to our French listeners, uh, it's all an act. We're, we're just, we're kidding. Uh, <laughs> we speak English and we do our best. But yeah, we're so far in transit, uh, La Jete, and we can just stick with that. But um, (laughs) the pier, the jetty, uh, the jet, it looks like it, a small, okay, La Jete, La Jeti, which makes sense, jetty is a noun, a small pier used for a landing place. That could also be a jump, like the jump. So I I saw a few different translations for it, but that references, of course, the the jetty is the runway where they watch the planes take off at the, you know, when he was a child and also where he ends Mm -hmm. up at the the end. Um, I'm not going to say mystery solved, but I think we're getting closer. (laughs) Yes. If you know what it is, you get closer to uh, learning how to pronounce it. So yeah, all those thoughts are very valid, interesting, appreciated that he offered that up for us. Uh, in watching this, you know, I had seen Twelve Monkeys before. I had no knowledge of this, and I, that I don't mean to sound uh, like an uneducated fool, but I just didn't. I knew that Twelve Monkeys was based off something, but I didn't know this was it, and I didn't know it was this art house experimental film, uh, short film from France from 1962. And honestly, in my entire time watching it, the 28 minutes that it lasts, I just could not move past how insane to me it was that this was released in 1962. And my letterbox review. Uh, I said I mentioned that the Beatles' first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show was two years after this, and that was one of those things that like shook people to their core of being like shocked. Like, here's these guys with bowl cuts talking about holding women's hands. <laughs> what the hell is going on? And then two years before, if you went to a cinema, you know, and just bought a ticket to see this short film, this, these people are talking about the world's going to be uh, eradicated. You know, the human race is going to be eradicated and they're going to have to send someone back through time to solve it. But in the end, all he really does is discover when he dies and, it, you know, <laughs> people in the streets tipping over cars and freaking out. Um <laughs> But in truth, the whole reason the Beatles analogy came to mind or um, comparison is I can't definitively say the Beatles paid homage to this, but the album cover for With the Beatles has the four of them arranged, uh, John, George, Paul, and then Ringo below them, and only the um, right sides of their faces are lit. And that is the the image we see when our main character in La Jete goes to see the the architects or like the people that can you know promise them peaceful living in the future is mm-hmm. we see we see them all arranged like that with just the half of their faces lit so again can't confirm that's what it was but that album came out in 1963 and this movie is obviously from 1962 so i found myself endlessly fascinated by that just in the sense of 
how did I never see this before and know this thing existed? And then, of course, because professional wrestling is inescapable, the dude is wearing a fucking El Santo T-shirt at the end. Our main character, as he runs to his ultimate demise, is wearing just some badass T-shirt that looks like it's probably his because it's like torn and tattered. And, you know, I don't think the budget on this thing was too high, but that that to me is... I guess as truncated history lesson as we can, El Santo was a wrestler, a very famous luchador in Mexico who debuted in 1934. Uh, and when I say famous, I don't mean famous in the sense of, hey, here's that wrestler. I mean, he was a fucking national icon, movies, television. Um, uh, he, uh, If you've seen Coco, El Santo is in that movie. And okay. so, yeah, he's... He goes beyond what most people can comprehend, uh, you know, for our patrons. When I spoke about Antonio Noki, uh, El Santo's, you know, uh, possibly even bigger in terms of a national icon than uh, he's a folk hero. But still, I stopped and I was very into what was going on. So I let the movie play out. But in my head, I was like, that motherfucker was wearing an El Santo t shirt. (laughs) So I had to go back and watch the end of it again. can't imagine if someone had a shirt like that still what that would be worth but just wild uh julio i immediately just bogarted this with making pop culture illusions and references but um it's a very fascinating story but i i mean that i can't get past the time frame of this it's just the idea of when this came out and the what i texted you like the thought process of someone going to watch this and i know if you want you can find like dark twisted movies that came out uh, around this time prior to it but concepts like this were not only like fresh but just kind of foreign to people at large and so that that's just very interesting to me yeah i think it's always a pleasure when you can add when you have both because i think that the movie it stands on its own even if you take out the context, right? And then, but then when you factor yes. in the context of like when it was happening, it's like that extra pleasure of like, yes, it, it must have been so awesome to, I mean, it's awesome now, but you know, like you said back then, because yeah, I watch it now, I'm like, oh, like, you know, 12 monkeys. <laughs> but people that didn't have that 12 monkeys to make a reference of, or, or even uh, the time traveler's wife, <laughs> then for them, it's just, it's <laughs> even fresher. Uh, I think that it's... Goddamn, you know that Looper movie is based on some Frenchy film? <laughs> I think it's from 1962. 28 minutes. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't move. Uh, I, I had heard of of, uh, of Lajete. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was experimental. I just remember knowing that Twelve Monkeys was based on a French short. Mm-hmm. And uh, that always made me wonder what that short was like. Because the story in Twelve Monkeys is so complicated. I was like, there's no way that you have a short that really delves into what they delve in, in Twelve Monkeys. And yeah, it, it doesn't. You know, it's like, it kind of like you said at the beginning of Dress Corner. It's it's about the kind of the, the loop, right? Of him seeing himself dying. And... Mm-hmm about the relationship he has with this woman, which he has a relationship with Madeline Stowe, and in a way she drives him to to come back. I think that he is coming back to the 90s partly because he hates <laughs> where he lives right now, because he appreciates the 90s as, you know, as a purer, cleaner time, but also because she's there and he has a connection with her. And La Jete is very much about that. Like it, it's really <laughs> what drives his, what really carries his narrative as far as his time travel is just this woman that he keeps seeing. And I was, I didn't know it was a love story. You know, it, I, it was, and it worked. It's pretty wild. I think that, uh, like what Stu was saying, you know, that, that there's other ways of making movies, of experiencing cinema, of, than just what we're used to. And what we're used to works wonderfully. But then you have this where I think that using still images somehow enhances the 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 feel of the movie. I think it has to do with because it's black and white photographs. It feels a little more like archive footage, except it's not footage, it's just archive material. And they're telling you the story, the past tense is like something that already happened, even though it takes place, you know, in the past and the future. And, you know, it's like, you could tell the story, you can make a 28 minute short sci-fi short that follows the story and kind of like explains it a little more. But I, I think that it would feel different 
in a way, kind of the way that Top Monkeys feels different from, you know, tone-wise, feels different from La Jetée. There's something more uh, abstract, I think, about the way that that they presented in, in the short. And it just works really well. You know, like, rationally, I'm like, I shouldn't really care about the relationship with this, between this man and this woman. But I think that just the way that they present it and the way that they kind of describe the the evolution of this friendship slash romance it's pretty cool you know i like the when they say that he comes back next time he comes back she's sleeping and he's afraid that he's been gone for so long that she's dead now and uh, all that stuff i mean you can kind of write an actual scene around it with dialogue and all that stuff but i think that maybe it would take away the power of it or, or at least give it a different kind of energy than when you just have you know still pictures being being put together well well there's narration and there's a score uh, it's not what i would have thought would be an effective way of telling a story but then you watch it happen it you know it's like you can't at least i couldn't deny it i'm like i was very much into it and then you get to the end and the end is horrifying and it's heartbreaking and kind of like in the same way that the, the ending of 12 monkeys is so there's there's power there and i totally get why you know it has a the criterion uh, release and why you know it's so acclaimed and i'm not much for experimental cinema you know this this is the kind of experimental cinema i can take because it, there's still a narrative <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, it's i guess it's a nice reminder that you know there's there's worlds beyond ours <laughs> i mean you know beyond the the type of movies that we usually watch even when we're constantly expanding our horizons uh, i liked it a lot i liked it a lot and and i think that watching it as somebody who really likes 12 monkeys it just it only enhances it because you know you draw the parallels it's like oh you know they have their own scientists and they have the their own um version of the apocalypse i i had a blast i'm, I'm really happy and i i can't wait to just start checking out the the special features on the on the disc I concur with the idea of photos because, like, even though it's telling you what's happening, a still image allows for so much interpretation uh, just by yes. one, not not like an audience at large, but by one person. I can't say this would work for me in a feature-length film, uh, but the story it tells and the way it's delivered in the concise manner that it is is just captivating. Very fascinating, very entertaining. Good music too, a good score mm-hmm. to it. And yeah. um And you know what? I, I just thought of this too. Like it it's because so much of it is about his memories and you know, like the reason that they select him to to go on these travels is because he has that strong memory of this woman to anchor him. And so the the idea of just still images, I think that it plays really well with that the concept of memory. And when you think of something, and sometimes you just remember it as you know, as a still image, I mean, you might remember it as a, as a fraction of a movement, but also just, I really liked how they would show her, you know, and just different shots of her, but there's no motion. It's just the stills. It was very evocative. It was a starting point for a whole series of tests in which he would meet her at different times. She welcomes him in a simple way. She calls him her ghost. One day, she seems frightened. One day, she leans over him. As for him, he never knows whether he moves towards her, whether he is driven, whether he has made it up, or whether he is only dreaming. Good shit, man. And then- Good shit. Now, Alex, before we move on, I, 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 were you aware that there was a 12 Monkeys TV show? No, uh, okay. I was, but completely forgot about it. Any good? I haven't seen it. I I decided that I didn't want to watch it because to me, it, that's the, the movie. And I know I don't want to sound close minded, but to me, it starts and ends with the movie. And I don't see how you could improve on the movie, you know, especially on a TV show. Like it, I guess the world of Twelve Monkeys is not a world that I'm interested in seeing expanded. I think that that's very fair. Part of the fun of it. It's, it's just the, the, all the things that we don't know. And I'm afraid that if, if you start expanding on it, it kind of loses its charm. You know, I don't really want to know the going-ons 
<laughs> you know what what's what's behind the the curtain for these scientists and, and you know what's outside that prison like i i just want it to be the movie and that's it um I, I'm I don't sure if we l- give a shit where the things I love come from. I just love the things I love. <laughs> That's for any Pat Oswald fans. They'll they'll know that it's that it's such a such a raw sentiment. I hundred percent behind it in this case. <laughs> well use the word unique and speaking of unique i think that's a good segue into the 68th academy awards taking place on march 25th of 1996 hosted by Whoopi goldberg uh-huh. and um uh, 12 monkeys found itself with two nominations one of which we kind of already mentioned but i just had forgotten how eclectic this year was braveheart of course cleaned up we had apollo 13 Babe got its Best Picture nominee that people to this day are still mad about, even though Babe is a fantastic film. Um, and it didn't just, it got Best Picture, Best Director. James Cromwell got Best Actor nomination, or was it Best Supporting Actor? He got, yeah, Best Supporting. Best Supporting. Uh, Babe yeah. is the, the, the lead actor <laughs> in the movie. Babe. Babe. <laughs> <laughs> Best Supporting Actress, that's when Mira Savino won for Mighty Aphrodite. Uh, Susan Sarandon won for Dead Man Walking. Nicolas Cage took home his Oscar for his legendary performance of Leaving Las Vegas. Holy cow. Yeah, all over the place. Yep. Uh, and then Christopher Plummer won for The Usual Suspects, beating out the aforementioned James Cromwell, Ed Harris and Apollo 13, Tim Roth and Rob Roy, and our boy Brad Pitt and 12 Monkeys. Uh, Kate Winslet got nominated for Sense and Sensibility, 96. You reckon that would have been her first nomination? Uh, yes. Woody Allen didn't get nominated for director, but did get nominated Screenplay? for... Screenplay? Yes. Yes, sir. Good call. Um, and if you can believe it, best screenplay written, so best original screenplay, Usual Suspects, Braveheart, Mighty Aphrodite, Nixon, and Toy Story. Joss Whedon. Hey. Andrew Stanton. Joel Cohen. Yeah. The whole gang's there. <laughs> 12 Monkeys Elsewhere, its other nomination came in the form of... I just had it. Where'd it go? Is it costume design? My man, costume design. There you go. Losing I think out I suit. remember them like walking out on that, the, the suit that uh, that Bruce Willis wears when he travels back in time. I think that I have this memory of somebody walking across the stage on it. <laughs> or maybe it was just a clip. But they were nominated for that alongside Richard III, Sense and Sensibility, Braveheart, but all those lost out to Restoration. Brad did, however, win the Golden Globe for his performance that he was nominated for. And I was looking for pictures of him from the Oscars, but I see a few here from the Golden Globes where he looks kind of interview with the vampire Brad a little bit. Sad. Uh, if you can believe it, he's attractive. I mean, that's <laughs> the story as it is. So since he definitely took home the 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 praise and the critical acclaim uh, out of everyone in this movie, I think we'll start with him and then just kind of uh, wind up with the, the rest of the cast. Uh, Southland Tales is a movie we talked about on our Patreon recently and about The Rock, about how um, I don't know if what he does in that movie is good, but it's genuine and from a place that we're never going to see him go again. And we never saw him go elsewhere. Brad Pitt is good. So his performance, I should say is better than Dwayne in Southland tales. But the reason I kind of bring that up to make the analogy is Brad Pitt ain't worried about his brand. It's not a matter of him (laughs) not doing certain movies because, you know, it could impact, uh, you know, my tequila or some shit. (laughs) It just seems as though he's never really been handed something this kind of wacky. Uh, and that word I use a lot of times in a very sarcastic, negative manner, but I, I don't mean that here. It's It was an opportunity for him to really just embrace a role, and he did. And, you know, we joked about it in Contrarian's Corner, the going for it, which he does go for it, but... It's just so good the entire time. And we haven't really seen something like this from him since. Uh, we've seen a lot of other repeatedly incredible performances from him. But this, not only does this movie feel wholly unique to me, uh, this Brad Pitt outing feels wholly unique. 
I wonder if it was a, an attempt from him, like a very deliberate attempt also from him to just stop, like cut the shit with the like heartthrob thing, you know, because at the time he was he was Rising Star and this is around the same time that Seven came out, right? Seven was 96, I believe. So yeah, this... Because it was, yeah, you said oh, this no, was 95. You're, you're right. This is 95. Uh, Seven came out in September of 1995. And as we mentioned, 12 Monkeys came out in December. So. In December, yeah. But so even still, like in, in seven, he's still kind of the pretty boy, right? That's, but that's why, like here, he's he's kind of like made up to be as unappealing as he can be, I guess. You know, while still being recognizable uh, as Brad Pitt, and he's he's just being uh, he's being funny and he's being very uh, you know appealing to watch. But he's also just I feel like he's playing so hard against his persona, you know. Uh, there's roles of Brad Pitt's that lean into the persona and they work. Like I, I we talked in our Ad Astra episode on, on Patreon about how like a lot of that movie works just because, you know, Brad Pitt is just like on the outside. He's so like put together. And uh, but there's the opposite. <laughs> you know, there's nothing cool about Jeffrey Gaines. He's just all over the place. Like he's just manic and he, he can't stand still. And it's uh I I I could be wrong. You know, maybe they just told him like, hey, would you do this? And he's like, sure, I'll give it a shot. But to me, it feels like he saw this opportunity to just really play against type, especially against the type that he had at the time. And he's like, I don't want to be cool at all. I just want to be in this cool movie, but I don't want to be cool. I just want to be a cartoon. And uh, he does it so well. I forgot it because I saw this movie so many times when I was, you know, when it came out when I was younger. And so his rants and his mannerisms like i remember just laughing about them and you know quoting them with my friends and i hadn't seen this movie in at least 10 years and so it all came flooding back it's uh, very memorable and i remember that being i think my first brad pitt movie it was just this revelation of like man this guy because i'd heard of brad pitt but that was me watching him like in action being uh just blown away i was like oh this guy it's it's more than just like oh the hot actor he's he's really good. I don't know if I've told it. Well, before I forget, the, Brad, I always think of in this movie was the first time I ever heard the word pusillanimous. He says that to one of his you know disciples. He's <laughs> uh, I he goes he uses several words. I think they're alliterative, and then he's pusillanimous, fake animal lover, or something like that. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this my story with this movie is my dad got it for me one year for Christmas because he was mad I had never seen it because he he loves it so much, and so it was one of these things he got. He's like, all right, now you don't have an excuse, and I think we might even watched it Christmas Day or, uh, how you know, during the Christmas break. Yeah, yeah, it is little, a Christmas movie. Apparently, it is. Yeah, and that was always what he said. He's like, oh man, Brad Pitt's so good in it. How about Burn After Reading? Because that is. Probably the closest he's come to to the Jeffrey Gaines character again, even though it's not the same. But you know, just being out there and kind of uh, playing against type. I was gonna say Inglorious Bastards because he is so close to like caricature and shtick in that movie. Yes. But Burn After Reading is a good call because he does he. Um, this isn't a derogatory description, but he's like very effeminate in that movie and very mm-hmm. like. Uh, you know, the skin tight clothing and obsessed with image and the hair and everything. And even like the way he dies in that movie is all played kind of for laughs. So I think that is an interesting parallel, but uh, obviously it's not to the point here. I think that I was going to say the closest thing is the tree of life, but um, <laughs> that that's, you know, just in my head going through all these movies of his, I really like even snatch a movie that's known for his over the top comedic performance. It still isn't quite the same thing. And I think that is all extremely complimentary to how talented he is as an actor. And it just goes back to our original thesis of this is kind of like a performance that should be admired and kind of held dear. Because I never really thought of it in the terms that you laid out, but I think that's an interesting idea of... uh, Because he very easily could have been what we talk about all the time, the the candle that burns out really quick because you can only be the the hot guy in the movie for so long. Cause this mm-hmm. would have been after Thelma and Louise and just what we're talking about seven. He's the hot guy in that. So I think that's a, a good take that I'd never once considered and probably extremely valid. He was the hot vampire in interview with a vampire. He was, he was hot and cool world. And, <laughs> um, 
what else was he hot in? True, uh, Legends true of the Romance. Fall. Legends of the Fall. Good one. Yeah. I need to go. I need to. I'm supposed to be gathering information. What kind of information? Won't help you. Bruce, it, it's Bruce. And it's a Bruce that we've talked about numerous times going through the diehard films that we've talked about on Patreon and also on our main feed. And just his career in general. We're both very big fans of Looper. And one of mm-hmm. the big con- consistent praises of Looper was that Bruce is back, baby. You know, like the this is the Bruce mm-hmm. we got in 12 Monkeys and Pulp Fiction and Die Hard. And he just, when he was on, man, there was really no one like him because he could, he had a very unique ability to be sympathetic, but then also he could immediately switch it to like this aggression that you feel bad for whatever character he's interacting with. It's just a, a different quality, you know, like in Pulp Fiction with John Travolta, it, Travolta didn't really have all those qualities. Like I never really thought John Travolta was like a badass that could hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. And with Bruce Willis, like when he turns it on in several scenes, like I remember the first time I watched this when he grabs um, Riley and I'm like, Oh God, what's he going to do? Cause that whole scene is so like really, ominous and but i believe it because bruce willis is so convincing and what he does from an acting perspective specifically in roles like this i i wouldn't say it's my favorite bruce willis performance but it, the movie hinges on him and he delivers yeah i think that much like with uh a rock journey where i would like lament the fact that the rock eventually kind of like evolved into a performer that was that was not into showing vulnerability. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a little bit of the path that that Bruce Willis went on, and mm-hmm. uh, this movie is so not that. <laughs> you know, he is just beaten down the entire movie. He is just uh, on a roller coaster of emotions. He he has no vanity. He's you know he looks bad. All that drooling that we talked about, and and he he has no problem suddenly turning into into a kid, you know, when it, when when he appreciates things in in you know our present, his past. I guess I've forgotten how how good he was. I, I always you know you always go to Brad Pitt when you're thinking of like the big performance here, but he's uh, I think he's really good. Is it my favorite Bruce Willis? I don't know. I mean, it it is definitely in contention, especially after this this watch because he i guess he nails it you know like he's you can feel his brain getting scrambled every time he goes back and so you know you know it's a different performance every time he arrives you know 1990 1996 and then back to 96 and he's just uh, he's falling apart more and more during the during the movie and he sells it and then you feel really bad at the end it, it's like fuck he died <laughs> He's dying and, and holding Melanstow's face. It's just, it's definitely, if it's not my favorite, it's definitely up there. And uh, yeah, you don't get to see much of him because, you know, when, when his bread and butter becomes the action movies or, or, or comedies where he plays a tough guy, then there's no room for this sort of uh, performance. So it's just another reason why I, I treasure 12 Monkeys is because you get to see that side of him. Agreed. We're pretty simpatico on this one man well now here comes a big point of contention alex how do you feel about madeline stowe there was a bit of truth shining through in my narrative and contrarian's corner my uh, <laughs> joke about there only being one mo- woman in this movie obviously it's not the literal case but you know there are parts where okay there's one thing it, it very specifically that is completely unnecessary where it looks like that guy is going to sexually assault her. I understand that there need to be some sort of conflict for uh, Cole to save her, you know, mm-hmm. but that like, it's like, ugh, come on. And I think a positive from that is most major motion pictures like this since have kind of matured past doing something like that very loosely, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of for effect. And I think that's a positive to take away from it. And it's easy to joke about, like, why didn't she drive away? Oh, why is she, like, you know, wanting to take care of this guy and all this? And you could easily reverse the roles in this, where Cole is a female and Riley is a male. 
and it could still be believable either way because the character of Catherine Riley is going on what she believes to be this downward spiral of insanity and but in the end is like rewarded with it's all true and look male female what have you none of us have ever been in a situation where we've been approached by a time traveler and we start to learn that this person's <laughs> telling us the truth so i can't tell you how i would react in that situation i'm not going to argue with anyone that thinks her character is not very flushed out comparatively speaking to some others but i think that specifically madeline stowe is very good and the riley character while maybe the weakest of the main cast i mean obviously it's the weakest of the the three leads but i still think it's fine and it does what it needs to and i don't have too many legitimate issues with it yeah her performance has definitely grown on me i I think that uh the first time i watched the movie i didn't really think anything of it and then uh, other times i watched it i was like is she is she a good actress I, i wasn't sure and then at some point when i watched it you know last time maybe i was like oh actually no it's really good she's really good and then and then watching it today, that was confirmed. And I, it's funny that you mentioned that you could gender flip them and it still works because I agree it does. But I think that why I had some problems with her character initially and why some people may have problems with her character is because it can be hard to believe that she would stick with Bruce Willis the way that she does. But But you have to, you know, there's really nothing that tells you that she wouldn't. You know, you just have to understand that... that you have to buy that she is a doctor that cares for her patient. You know, you can add that, oh, and she also feels like she knows him from somewhere else. So she's kind of sticking around to see, to try to solve the mystery. But I don't, I don't have a problem uh, buying that, that she's really trying to do good by him. You know, it's like, I can't just leave this poor guy who's, you know, delusional, to just abandon him because, you know, he's having such a rough go at it just by himself in the city. And, but it, but it is, it's also, it's such a dangerous situation that I think it's a little easier to buy it if she is a guy, you know, because you're just movies in general, you know, you're, you're trained to see a guy protecting, you know, a male doctor protecting a female patient. It's like, Oh yeah, I'll buy that because it's, it's, you know, it's a dangerous world and the, <laughs> the male doctor is going to help her. Whereas I hear is like, Oh, the female doctor is in danger the entire time. And she's going to keep putting herself in danger just to try to protect this guy that apparently, you know, <laughs> up to a point can take care of himself. So I think that that, that is like a little bit of a hurdle that it's not really a, a problem with the script. I think it's just a problem with, you know, in my case, it was just like my, preconceptions of what that type of character would bring to the table or would do. But once you buy in, yeah, her performance is really, I, I, I like it because she doesn't give a shit, you know, like she's constantly speaking her mind and she's constantly kind of like making fun of like the men surrounding her. Like when the, when she, we first see her and she goes to meet Bruce Willis for the first time and the, the cop, the, the police officer that's, that's kind of like introducing her to the, to the situation. You know, he's making some comments and she's just kind of like low key making fun of him. I really like that that I guess that she's so brave that she's so I'm gonna keep going forward, you know, that you could have had her play a different character, probably a more familiar character, one that's just uh a damsel in distress, but that's not what she is, you know. She's somebody mm-hmm. that's trying to figure shit out. And that's I really like it. I, I like it a lot. That moment in the in the car when she decides not to leave, and this will tie into my story with Toad Monkeys, but uh the screenwriters uh, David and Janet Peoples, they were at the at the first Austin Film Festival I ever attended, and uh, they did a they had a panel where they talked about Twelve Monkeys. I remember if we watched the movie and then they they came in, you know, to talk about it, or if it was just we we're just talking about it. I think that we showed the movie. They showed the movie first, and we sat through it. But uh, it was a it was a really cool conversation. They were really cool people and really smart writers, as you would expect from you know the people that wrote Twelve Monkeys. And uh, one of the stories they told was that they were shooting that scene, and uh, you know the scene where he sees the the graffiti and he jumps out of the car and gets really excited and she's in the car, and mm-hmm. uh, they were they were shooting it and then they realized you know the people in production and everything they're like oh shit. Why doesn't she leave? Like, we fucked up, you know? And and then they were on set. So they're like, okay, well, let us write something. You know, we're going to rewrite the scene so that we can explain that she doesn't, why she doesn't leave. And Madeline Stowe told them, like, no, 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 I can, I can do it. Just let me, I can act it. 
I get I can make you understand, you know, what's happening. And she does. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. you watch you watch a scene and it's like the shot and you see her and you can read it in, in her face, her her body language that she's wrestling with the idea of like, do I take off or do I stay? And when she stays, you understand why she stays because she she feels like this is her responsibility. So I always remember that, you know, I've ever since that that conversation, like I I always when that scene comes on, I'm like, man, she's a really good actress. James, do you know why you're here? Because I'm a good observer. I have a tough mind. I see. You don't remember assaulting a police officer or several officers. Why are you chained? Why are you chained on me? You've been in an institution before, haven't you? The other part of it is that, uh, and I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this, I, I must have told part of this story, a version of this story, when we did the Get Shorty episode, and that is that... Uh, I went, my dad and I went to the movies to watch Get Shorty, you know, when it opened. Uh, it was just the two of us. And when we got there, they were doing a special screening of Toad Monkeys, like, which hadn't, you know, Toad Monkeys hadn't come out yet. But they were like, oh, it's a special screening of, of, of Toad Monkeys. And so my dad talked me into going to see Toad Monkeys because, you know, it was like the cool thing. Watch a movie before, before it actually opens. And, uh, of course, so the side effect is that Get Shorty did really badly in Peru. So the next week, it was gone from theaters. So I never got oh. to see Get Shorty in theaters. I know. And I was like, oh, fuck. I should have, you know, we should have gone to see Get Shorty. But the the upside of it is that we both really liked Top Monkeys. And uh, we came out of it and, and we're both really high on it on, and, and discussing, you know, the, the complications of time travel and what really happened at the end. And, and it was just, you know, it became, Top Monkeys became one of those movies that my dad and I would reference, you know, for years to come where we just we liked the movie we had a good time and he always felt like it was one of those things where we didn't plan it you know we just happened to make it to the theater when there was a special screening and we just took the chance and had a good time and and that kind of thing you know you can't help but have a special connection to a movie when when something like that happens you know because it's not just yeah it's not just like oh it's a cool sci-fi movie it's a cool sci-fi movie that i watched with my dad and we both like had a special connection to it you know and so so yeah it's I, I'm not going to even pretend that I am not biased towards liking it and, and not being super critical of it. Like, if this was a movie that I maybe watched, you know, today, completely fresh, would I be as forgiving of the inconsistencies in the plot? Maybe not. I don't know. But, but you know, I watched it the way I watched it. And from that first time I watched it, I just knew that I was going to... Uh, I was going to go pretty easy on it <laughs> because I like so much about it. And and on top of that is a movie I watched with my dad. So at this point, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's probably top 50. It might be even higher. I don't know. I, I need to look at that list I made a long time ago. Worth calling out that uh, Terry Gillum was afraid that Brad Pitt wouldn't be able to pull off the nervous rapid speech. He sent him to a speech coach. But <laughs> in the end, but in the end, he just took away Brad Pitt's cigarettes and Pitt played the part exactly as Gillian wanted it. <laughs> it's always Brad's uh, always been known to enjoy his Marlboros. I actually don't know what brandy smokes, but um, and then <laughs> Bruce, Ball. he's like a rich, successful actor, and he smokes like fucking American spirits or something. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what's the Tarantino brand of cigarettes? Is it Candy Apple Red or Red it's Apple cigarettes? Red. Yeah. yeah. Initially, Bruce Willis took a lower salary than his star status would. Uh, normally entitle him. Uh, that was because of the budget, but mostly because he wanted to work with Taron Gillum. In the end, he did the movie for free and was only paid after it was released. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, he had diehard money to burn, but still, that's, that's <laughs> pretty impressive. Um, so Terry Gilliam, Alex, let's, let's, I just want to clear up that, uh, you know, I was kidding at Trent's Corner. I think he's a very accomplished filmmaker. <laughs> I, I don't think that he has. I love the Fisher King. Time Bandits is okay. Brazil was interesting. Uh, and then he did that um, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, you know, like that yeah. was officially Heath Ledger's last movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's a, a a fun filmmaker. I don't always connect with his stuff. Like uh, I remember when I was a kid, I watched The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and uh, that's kind of a mess. And then I've never been able to sit through uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Have you? Because you brought it up earlier. No. Not for me, man. 
Yeah, I know a lot of people just enjoy the visual side of it, uh, but I just I I can't. So that really, I've never thought about that before. That seems like the most anti Julio movie ever. And <laughs> uh. and in, in, in the you know when you look at his filmography, Twelve Monkeys really stands out as his most mainstream movie. Like he oh, went definitely. all Hollywood. Yeah. Which is fine, you know. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I don't think he sold out. I just think he made a movie that that was a little more commercial than the others. I've really been lucky getting my films. They fall through the cracks at the right time. It seems to me somehow the system isn't as good as it ought to be. So the system should be excluding me in my work, but no, we somehow managed to get through there. <laughs> All right. So where does this sit, Julio? I ended up giving it four and a half stars in my letterbox review. I will translate that to an A, not an A minus, not an A plus. We're gonna do a dead center A on this. Uh, for you, I think I know, but why don't you just tell the listeners where this lands? <laughs> I think objectively it should be four and a half stars because that mm. there's there's some weird things in the plot, and but then also I think that there is an added experience to trying to talk through the things that apparently don't make sense. Talking about the movie with people that like the movie, that's when fan theories are fun, and so. I remember kind of thinking that there's something to the line that Bruce Willis has where he's like, it's not even about stopping the virus anymore. It's just about following orders. And Mm. I think that maybe that's the moment where you're supposed to realize that he never knew what was happening. Kind of like the answer to the question of like, why do they keep sending him? He's, you know, he has good memory, but there must be somebody that can do a better job. And, And then it kind of becomes a little clearer that it's just that he's disposable. He's He doesn't matter. And the people that really know what's going on, the people that really know like what the plan is, are those scientists. And they're not telling him and they're not telling us. Mm-hmm. So when he's given the gun and he's told to do something that contradicts everything he's been doing during the movie, I think that just as he realizes that he's just like a cog in the machine, that he's not really supposed to make sense of it, that's we're supposed to get that same realization. I think that there's, you know, there was probably a better way of pulling it off. But when I rationalize it like that, it actually becomes a very interesting uh, final act. Uh, so all this to say, it should be four and a half, but I already went on about how attached I am to it. So for me, it's a five-star movie. Fair enough. I dig it. Sometimes, you know, you just, it's like you and Halloween. You, you just have to forgive all its flaws and just embrace how you feel about it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You got to open your heart sometimes. That's all that it takes. All right, Julio. So thank you, Stu, for bringing this and uh, the never before seen La Jete to myself and Julio. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed watching and discussing them. So Julio, that begs the question, what is next? What is next? We started the month with dinosaurs, then time travel. How, how much more outlandish can we get? Uh, well, n- not at all. Like, <laughs> we're gonna do Paris, Texas. Uh, that's the next step on the on the patron takeover. We're gonna come down from all this fantasy sci-fi uh, stuff that we've been dealing with, and now it's just uh, a road trip. Is that the- you've seen it more recently than I have, Alex? It's it's a road trip movie, a father and a son. Yes, but not in the vein of like. <laughs> The Contrarian's summer road trip that we did. <laughs> What's that movie? The Guilt Trip? It, it ain't that. It's not Road Trip with Tom Green? No, it is not. 94% that's coming courtesy of Coldstone Steve Austin. Hell yeah. You would think it would be a wrestling movie, but nope, it isn't. So we shall talk about Paris, Texas. Uh, you should watch it before next episode, or you can just wait and we'll, we'll summarize it for you. But uh, until then, uh, that's it for 12 Monkeys and Time Traveling. Get us out of here, Alex. All right. We're going to go ahead and move into our perennial plugs. We'll start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothieser is the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, our Patreon page, our merch page. That little tomato looking at itself in the mirror, that is Hans's work. You can check out more of his work on his webpage, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. If you like his work, you can contact him on Twitter at Mildemonios through email, mildemonios at hotmail.com. You can check out his podcast, Nacion Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, or Marginal, which is about economy. Just reach out and tell him, hey, that's a cool tomato that you threw. Hans, <laughs> thank you for all your support. If you need some more professional wrestling coverage and podcasting in your life, head over to latenightgrin.com. 
Tell our friends Joe, Matt, Devin, and Bob that we said hi. Uh, I will be on there at the end of this month for yet another episode of The Green Grappler discussing the uh, career and times of one Kevin Owens, formerly known as Kevin Steen. Looking very forward to it. They continue to support the Contrarians and help spread the word about us, so we'd like to do the same for them. And speaking of continuing to spread the word of the Contrarians and contribute to our little empire here, our social media team of Coriari and Zoe Perez, they put together the content of our YouTube page, uh, Facebook page, Instagram page. They continue to just help make our social media game look good. So be sure to head over to Facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime, YouTube.com slash at Contrarian Prime, uh, on Instagram at Contrarian Prime, and of course our Twitter accounts in the bumper of the podcast. Uh, the graphics and videos you'll see there are largely done by them, and they look so much sweeter than you or I could do, Julio, so I'm really grateful for the work they do for us. Uh, and, of course, extremely grateful for you, our listening public, for tuning in to yet another episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>